The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I think what's different now is a broader uh, scope of understanding that it's not only our own facilities and installations that are at risk, but it's also going to shape where we're going to have to fight on the battlefield potentially, or how we fight on the battlefield and where risks might arise. And in that sense, I think there's still work to be done. I'm expecting that in the budget request for next year, we're going to see a pretty robust uh, request on a lot of climate provisions within the defense defense department. I think the the other area that there's not been as much attention to is the mitigation question, cutting emissions, and what can the department do to lead by example on that. I think the executive order from President Biden will requires them to do some things like electrifying the federal fleet. I'm Natalie Orcutt, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 1st, 2021. Today, we're bringing you a recording of Lawfare Live, a weekly series available to Lawfare material supporters. Last week, the Department of Defense, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Homeland Security, and the National Security Council each released their own reports addressing the issue of climate change as a national security threat. To unpack what's in the reports and what it all means, we were joined by Mark Nevitt, Associate Professor of Law at Syracuse University College of Law, and Aaron Sikorsky, Director of the Center for Climate and Security and Director of the International Military Council on Climate and Security. After my discussion with Mark and Aaron, we opened it up for questions from the audience. You can join future Lawfare Live events and access other special content by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 1st, Mark Nevitt and Aaron Sikorsky on climate change and national security. I want to zero in on the question that sort of inevitably arises whenever you put climate change and national security in the same sentence, which is how much can this possibly matter as compared to more traditional concerns like terrorism and arms races and things like that? So I don't think anyone who came to this event needs to be convinced that it does matter, but pretend you're talking to someone who really does. What's your sort of elevator pitch? Why does this matter? Why should we care? Sure. I'll I'll start off by saying I think a lot of people who are skeptical of climate change as a security issue will first ask that question. Really, is climate change more important than hypersonic missiles launched by China? Is climate change really more important than terrorism, nuclear threat? And I think the opening question we really shouldn't think of as an or, as a fundamental matter, is climate or. It's not a a binary choice where it's climate change or, or this. So I think that a lot of people, particularly climate skeptics, will, will ask that question and frame that question. And I think the question itself has an implicit bias associated with it. I think the follow on to that is that how is climate change a security threat? I frame it in three different ways. And, and Aaron has deep expertise on this as well. The first is just climate mitigation, how we reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Climate is a global collective action problem. The military is the largest employer in the world emits a lot of greenhouse gases. The atmosphere could care less where those greenhouse gas emissions come from, China, the United States, 
US Department of Defense. Climate adaptation, how do we safeguard military installations, military infrastructure? That's really how climate security came to be 10 years ago when I was an environmental attorney, a JAG in Norfolk, Virginia, just safeguarding military installations. But it really has expanded so much broader than that just in the last few years to the third sort of lens I would highlight, which is response. How to respond to climate disasters, both domestically and both abroad. That strikes me as a core national security interest of the United States. It's going to increasingly stress and test our domestic legal structure, National Guard, Coast Guardsmen, and military domestically. We also want to start thinking broadly, big picture, about broader geopolitical challenges where those developing nations, those particular parts of the world, are going to be under increased climate stress. So mitigation, adaptation, and response is how I, how I think of it. And that's why I'm really excited about these climate reports, because they really provide a lot of detail behind that. Yeah, if I can follow on on that, Mark's exactly right that the question itself is, I think, the wrong framing, right? Instead of trying to rack and stack, is climate change more of a threat than China or terrorism? The real question is, how is, how is climate change shaping the security environment? Right? How are all these other threats that we care about shaped by extreme weather, by competition over access to minerals and resources, shaped by sea level rise? All of those things are going to make the, the landscape in which these other threats emerge. And so having a, a climate lens to the security conversation is so critical. And they're not either or. I think China is a perfect example, actually, of that where bringing a climate understanding to what's happening domestically in China, right? What are the climate risks they face? How are they seeing climate in terms of competition on the world stage, in terms of their access outside of their borders? All of those questions. If you don't bring the, the climate lens there, you're going to get the answers wrong. And these documents actually, I think, do a fairly good job of making the case for why it's an integrated issue and an integrated risk. Um, and we can talk more about this in the in the conversation. I mean, Mark uh, brought up a lot of good ways of thinking about it as a security issue. I would also offer that that climate change shapes risk of conflict and instability in states and places the United States cares about and and are critical to our national interests. And so, understanding those connections, looking at different geographies, which the uh, one of the reports did in great detail, um, is is really important. Okay, great. So I think let's just run through um, what are the key takeaways from these reports. I know it's a, it's a bit of a complicated question because there are four different reports. My understanding is that there is a lot of overlap, but there are meaningful differences between them and they are complementary in nature. So as you said, Aaron, there's, there's one that focuses more on geopolitical issues, for example. Why don't we start with you, Mark? You laid out in your article, I think, some useful categories of the takeaways. And then, Aaron, if you could add, if you think there are any other sort of high-level categories that you would assign, or if there's anything else you'd like to add within what Mark put forward in his article with us, that would be great. Great. Sure. Happy to answer that. And you know, I read all four of these reports. I should also say there also were two other reports a month beforehand, the Department of Homeland Security Adaptation Report in the Department of Defense's climate adaptation report. So in total, there's six climate reports uh, addressing the security issues. But I highlighted five in my lawfare piece as I look through these really six reports to try to find common threads. There's really five sort of top lines. One is that the national intelligence estimate, which I think is a really groundbreaking document and that it's in direct conversation with climate science. And the world is far off track to meet the Paris Climate Accord's goals 
which we'll be thinking about in Glasgow over the next week. So you have a dialogue between the intelligence community and the peer-reviewed science, which suggests that we are well off track to meet Paris Climate Accord goals, and that is driving the instability that Aaron mentioned. The second piece is that it's going to exacerbate existing geopolitical divides. We can talk about where those divides are. I think, and after reading the national intelligence estimate and the other reports, but increasingly all roads are leading to China on climate action, both because they are the world's leading greenhouse gas emitter, and they also have vast resources associated with renewable energy. And so any sort of meaningful climate dialogue has to really address China. There is specific identification of geopolitical flashpoints in Central Africa, small island developing states, and 11 developing nations. That was unique that I saw. Four of those nations are very, very close to the United States' border. And that migration, and there was a National Security Council's migration report and climate change are now really inextricably linked. It's really hard to you know, disaggregate the two. And the fifth one, which is really interesting to me, I haven't seen much reading on this, but as a governance attorney, and I'm a lawyer, thinking about geoengineering. As we become more desperate, the world becomes more desperate to avert climate disaster when we exceed the Paris Climate Accords goals. And by the way, there will be an increasingly blame game, which will be associated with some of these geopolitical flashpoints. There could be unilateral geoengineering. Just think of solar shields or aerosol in the atmosphere, high risk, high reward type type ventures, which is unique of the intelligence report. So those are the five sort of top lines. And I'm sure Aaron has has really good thoughts on that as well. Sure. So a few other thoughts from my perspective. I mean, one is I think it's important to to separate the national intelligence estimate from the other reports in that it comes obviously out of the intelligence community and is meant to be just an analysis of the problem. Right. All of the other reports, to a certain extent, have fairly robust policy recommendations in them, whereas the, the IC stands apart, right, speaking truth to power and how, the, how they call it, how they see the world. So I think that's, that's important to take away. And I hope internally the intelligence community is doing its own work to think about how does it need to reorganize itself and, and create some policy change to tackle these risks, which is in the other documents uh, more publicly. The other two pieces that I took away, and this some of this comes out of the climate adaptation plan from the Pentagon that came out earlier in the month that Mark mentioned, is the need for a climate strong or climate competent workforce, national security workforce, that you have people in positions across government who are able to bring that climate lens to their work. It's something that's highlighted in the Department of Homeland Security plan quite a bit, again, in the, in the climate adaptation plan from DOD because this can't just be siloed off in an office by itself, right? Where all the climate nerds go and do their jobs and, and dig into the issue, but it needs to be the assistant secretary of state for different regions of the world or the COCOMs and the military need to be able to bring that, that climate lens and bring the data and the predictive capabilities to their strategies and plans. And so that I thought was a theme throughout. The last theme then, and hopefully we can talk about this a bit more, was this idea that there are opportunities as well in terms of working with partners and allies around the globe to tackle some of these risks. That if the US is looking to strengthen, say, its position in competition with China, that there are co-benefits to helping allies and partners manage climate security because it's what they're most concerned about in many cases. And the DOD report in particular lays out a lot of opportunities for that. And I hope that we see continued action. I look to the budget request next year and, and thinking about foreign military assistance and, and all of that as, a, as an opportunity there on an issue that these countries really care about. 
Yeah, I think that's that's so interesting. And there there's a lot to unpack there. I one piece, uh, Mark, that I you know, unfortunately, I am also a lawyer here, so I'm a little inclined toward legal issues, but that you mentioned very briefly in your article, and I'm fascinated by is the extent to which current law around refugees does not take into account climate change and really the extent of the risk that it poses and how it should compare to other reasons for which people are forced to flee and become, you know, are able to achieve refugee status for legal protections purposes. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Both internationally and domestically, the the term climate refugees does not have a special legally protected status. So people on your call may be familiar with the World Refugee Convention that was passed or a treaty that was designed after World War II, really focused on religious, political sort of persecution and the aftermath of the 1940s Cold War and um, or the Cold War and after World War II. So the refugee international law sort of ossified in the, in the 1950s. We have seen sort of recent action from even rights councils sort of prescribing a fundamental right to an environment. We've seen some international law evolve in the sense giving climate refugees, particularly from small island developing states, seeking asylum status in parts of New Zealand and parts of the Pacific. Some There's some language that is supporting climate refugees as, as, as an affirmative right, but the law hasn't quite evolved to, to that level quite yet. And so implementation and how certain legal bodies will look at climate change as a prescriptive right is still quite not there. And that's why the migration report uses the term migrants and and not refugees. I think that's a tacit acknowledgement of the state of the current law. And I just want to say that for climate change in the United States, it is a critically national security issue, but it is really the issue I would submit for some of these Pacific small island developing states. One of the highlights of the report for me for those who have been studying the plight of these small island developing states is that we could be thinking about 20% coastal loss in the next 20 years. The national intelligence estimate has talked about the next 20 years, looking at 20% of some of these nations coastal loss. At some point we're talking possibly about nation extinction or some sort of way to deal with this climate migration problem. We can talk about that some more, but imagine if the U S coastline, was going to be impacted and we were going to lose 20% of our coastline to sea level rise, we would think about climate change in a way that they do in the Pacific. Yeah. Aaron, can you talk a little bit about what the how the intelligence community is thinking about this particular aspect in terms of eroding coastlines, the effect of mass movements of populations as a result of climate change and sort of the, the general phenomenon of a lot of literally physical instability resulting from climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think you saw in in the document itself, the, the National Intelligence Estimate, that the, the approach is primarily looking at it from a geopolitical angle, right? And that's where I think the intelligence community and the security community feels pretty comfortable. And I think that some of the shocks that we're expecting from, from climate change, though, that will lead to instability in, in different parts of the world are perhaps a little bit conservatively estimated in this report, I would argue. There was a chart on on one page that showed, you know, in which year we should expect political instability and, and conflict risk in states. 
And that and I was surprised on the chart that they actually ranked that low until 2040 when it rises to medium. When actually this summer, you already saw in many parts of the world, you go to the Middle East, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, you had people out in the streets protesting over lack of water and energy resources. And there was a clear climate change element to that. There's also poor governance and bad resource management, but there was record temperatures, record drought in those countries. And so it's already happening in some places. So I, I do think there's a little bit of catching up to do in the intelligence community on these issues where they've had folks looking at these issues, but not to the extent and the depth that I think is is needed, frankly, by the by the warning they gave themselves in this national intelligence estimate. You know, a few weeks ago, CIA announced the creation of a new China center and a new transnational center that will house climate change and pandemics and health issues and technology, which is, in my opinion, a little bit of a rebrand of centers that have been around before. What I hope is that China Center has analysts in it who can have a climate change background and understand the climate science well enough to bring the climate lens to the China issue. And you see that in other regional centers as well. I think that's the direction the IC needs to go in. And I think, again, this this intelligence estimate makes that case, right, about the importance of of the issue. So I think I think they're they're getting there. Um, but I think the the bench, unfortunately, has been pretty thin um, on these issues. And that's not just a challenge in the IC, but across the entire national security community. And President Biden's ambitions on climate change have been very high in, in national security since the beginning. But one of the challenges is the, the workforce um, and building those skills within the workforce to be able to tackle these issues. And do you think, just as a quick follow-up to that, do you think that the creation of Secretary Kerry's role and that office it can make a meaningful difference here? Or is that sort of more limited to the State Department and our external messaging to foreign countries? Or does that make a difference in the intelligence community? I, I think it makes a difference in that it sends a strong demand signal for climate-influenced uh, intelligence, right? Uh, Senator Kerry spoke at a, or sorry, Secretary Kerry, uh, he's got many titles, uh, spoke at a conference we organized, the Center for Climate and Security organized with the Belfer Center earlier this year, where he made a strong case for wanting more intelligence on on climate change. So yeah, I think it's it's necessary, but not sufficient in the long run, right? And and we, that demand signal needs to be coming from from different parts of the government as well, which I think it is now. And, and the IC tends to be very responsive to those those demand signals. So hopefully and I've heard really good things from from DNI Haynes as well. I just think institutions are hard to change. Right. Culture is hard to change on on these topics. Yeah. Mark, I, I was also fascinated by something else you mentioned um, in the article was which was your description of the geotechnical efforts that could be made and the risks and potential rewards that they present. And you gave this really, I mean, I am not a scientist, but you gave this really interesting example that sounded very sci-fi to me. If you could maybe talk a little bit about that example, and then if you have any other examples of sort of technological efforts that are being discussed that might be used to combat climate change. Sure, happy to. So I think one of the key takeaways from these reports is that Again, we're well off track to exceed our allotted greenhouse gas emissions. And just so the viewers understand, the climate science has evolved quite quite a bit. And I'm not a climate scientist, but I read everything that comes out by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the National Climate Assessment, as well as the best peer-reviewed scientific literature. And I, I really encourage your listeners to, to engage actively, at least with the executive summaries of that peer-reviewed science literature. 
And the thinking being is that at 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius, by the way, that's not Fahrenheit, and that's an aggregate global temperature, the world changes dramatically. It's very localized. Parts of the world warm much faster than just that standard 1.5 degree temperature above pre-industrial norms. That's Celsius, so Fahrenheit's much, much larger. But the sense is that as we blast through this, which we are on track to do, <laughs> we are on track to blast through 1.5 degrees Celsius global temperature based upon current emissions trajectories. Nations will increasingly look to take that carbon atmosphere out of the atmosphere, and they'll do it through two ways. One is through geoengineering, which is what the NIE talked about, which is really, really high risk, high reward, and incredibly dangerous because we lack a governance solution for people to project this sort of sci-fi solar shields or aerosol in the atmosphere as a way to unwind this global warming. And so we don't have a governance solution. The only real law that addresses it addresses environmental modification in times of armed conflict. And we don't wanna go there. The second piece, which I think is, doesn't have as many legal issues, but has some prospect is carbon capture and, and sequestration, which is really taking the carbon out of the atmosphere, direct carbon capture. That's more localized, doesn't have the same governance solutions or problems because it's done at a very localized level. But one can imagine some of the carbon capture and sequestration being put out in the high seas or in ocean sequestration. That's in the high seas where there's really not a clear legal governance mechanism on the UN Convention on Law of the Sea. So for all your listeners, this is, this is new, novel, ripe, unresolved, and really interesting issues because I think there'll be increased pressure to unwind the carbon emissions. And I think and we will get increasingly pressured to do that. So that then raises for me, Aaron, these sound like scary technologies. How does the intelligence community think about this whole facet of it? What are we going to do in response besides try to decrease continuing emissions? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think a whole category of climate security risk are these risks of response, right? And so not that they're the wrong path necessarily, but how countries interact, how they react to other countries taking action creates potential security challenges. I think with geoengineering, and I mean, I I also am not a climate scientist, so I, I can't speak to, to the technologies, but there are those who argue that it is it is the right right thing to do. I think as Mark highlights, though, the, the question is there aren't rules of the road, right? And it's something that can be done by different states. It could be done by a non-state actor. It could be done by a super empowered wealthy individual, right? And so who who's in charge and who gets to decide on that? And you've already seen even, even the testing of some of these technologies at the very... Um, basic level has been gotten a lot of pushback from different communities and and there's legal issues tied up in that. So I think for the intelligence community just understanding, you know, what research is being done, who's doing it, what interests are among states, where this might lead to potential flashpoints and instability. I think, you know, just the the energy transition itself as we move from fossil fuels to renewable energy uh, we've already seen in you know places like France with the yellow vest protest a few years ago was in large part due to to rising gas prices. Um, we've got an energy crisis right now happening um, in Europe for the winter potentially and in China. And so, what are the the risks there? Again, without making a judgment about the the right policy choices with energy, that's not really the right the role of the intelligence community. But instead, to warn so we can we can get ahead of this. I mean, one of the 
one of the silver linings, if you will, of, of climate change is that the predictive capabilities and the models that exist in the scientific community are quite good. And so using those in intelligence, integrating them into our warning is absolutely paramount, right? If when I was a junior analyst many years ago, if I had had some model that would tell me what a foreign leader was going to do 10 years from now with, with great, great accuracy, I absolutely would have used it, right? So we have that in, when it comes to, to climate change and even some of the energy transition pieces. So, so leveraging that is really, really important as well. So, and that makes me wonder, um, something you had mentioned before sort of suggests that, you know, where you're seeing that climate change is already making a difference, it's maybe not being recognized as such. So, for example, the protests over water and the heat and all of that is, is that just a sort of failure to recognize that certain indicators that, as you said, the intelligence community is is responsible for sort of saying things that as they are in producing a very good analysis of the state of things, that it's just not yet recognizing that some of these factors are in fact climate change related? Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to speak for the intelligence community writ large right now. I've been out for, for a while and, and who knows, there may be classified reports that is talking about the links of climate change with what happened this summer. I, but I do think the challenge is because it's a systemic risk, right? It's not just one thing. It's not climate change alone that's driving the protests. It's climate change intersecting with lots of different uh, variables within these countries. And it's it's a quote unquote actorless risk, right? There's no proximate actor who's responsible. So I think that's challenging for the traditional approach of a lot of intelligence analysis and a lot of focus and how they're structured on countries and on you know governments. And, and so it, it can be hard the folks that look at these issues have traditionally been siloed off in a different office from the regional shops. And instead of collaborating, there's often competition. Um, so I think, I think that's part of, part of the challenge there is to bring that systemic lens. And also it's, it's the scientific literacy. That's not generally what is, what is hired for in a lot of analytic positions within the intelligence community. And so reading scientific journals as part of your sourcing or um, being able to bring in big data uh, modeling systems, you know, isn't necessarily required. And so I think in that case, you, you can miss things as well. Super interesting. Um, Mark, do you have anything to add? I'll just add to briefly to Aaron's point about attribution and causation, which has a specific uh, legal importance in terms of this climate is climate change, the proximate cause of this specific climate impact. So there has been advances in what's called climate attribution science, which is trying to make that connection. And we've seen just the last week with some of the fossil fuel companies being testified in front of Congress, it seems to be a little bit of a playbook done under the tort type playbook with tobacco litigation we're trying to present actual knowledge was this company affirmatively aware that climate change and greenhouse gas emissions was the proximate cause of these follow-on impacts that's a really interesting area of the law again for your lawfare listeners and untested and unsettled and we'll see where where that where that goes i mean climate litigation has exploded in this country your listeners may not be aware, but the United States has more climate-related lawsuits than any other nation. And so that speaks to, I think, some of the innovative legal strategies based upon this climate attribution science linking the climate change with climate impacts. Yeah, and I know Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act has been uh, 
very meaningful there. So we have lots of back issues on Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act analysis for those of you who are interested. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. 
Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once, because the information will get back into the systems. It does it, and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports, and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Okay, I want to open it up for questions because we have some really good questions in the comments. So uh, have any of these reports spoken of the need for the U.S. to perhaps intervene militarily to prevent uh, unilateral desperate action by a nation to stave off the effects of climate change? I'm. You kind of touched on this topic already, but uh, would you like to uh, discuss it a little bit further? Thanks. I can jump in. I don't I don't think I saw anything in the report specifically speaking to unilateral action. I think there was an illusion, especially in the NIE and the front part of the challenges if countries don't act to cut emissions, right? And what that will do to their standing in the world and to tensions between countries or between communities within countries. I, I'm certainly you could you could spin out a scenario, right? If you were doing some scenarios analysis where what you propose could could be possible, I think it would it would require knowing ahead of time what they were going to do, right? And it would obviously require being able to um, to make the case that it was enough of a security risk to the rest of the world that they were going to do it. There's a great book you're probably familiar with by Kim Stanley Robinson, Ministry for the Future. It's a novel that came out last year. And he actually proposes in there that India takes unilateral action to do some of the geoengineering uh, work that, that Mark was talking about in response to an extreme heat event in their country where thousands, hundreds of thousands of people die, which is not out of the, the realm of possibility given where we're seeing temperatures going and the so-called wet bulb temperature 
for people, which is a mix of the temperature and the humidity in the air and human beings can't sustain life outside at that temperature. And we've seen that temperature reached in Pakistan, for example, in the past year and, and other places. So, but yeah, I mean, I, so the, I, and Mark may know better than me. He may have read them more closely than me. I didn't see that specific scenario, but I think the context is, is there. Yeah, I'll jump in briefly. Just, you know, I go back to climate security, mitigation, adaptation, response. And these reports are focused on response and risks. So preemptory military action is not discussed. And I want to allay all fears on this call that that is discussed in this in this report. The reports really look at increased role for defense support to civil authorities, which is a core DOD mission, which is after extreme weather, natural disasters, pick your favorite wildfire, natural disaster. In particular, there's two parts of the military that will be called upon based upon their existing legal authorities. That is the National Guard, Army and Air Force National Guard, as well as the U.S. Coast Guard. So active duty federal military forces don't have the technical expertise. They actually don't have the full reign of, of legal authorities to respond to some of these domestic aspects. And outside the United States, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. And so that's part of the work of this report, I think, is sort of saying, well, how is our is our force structure? And the DOD has a really good discussion about our is our force structure ready for our climate destabilized world? There is some research that Erin mentioned, and Craig Martin is a law professor at uh, Washburn who, who's thinking broadly about what's the role for the UN Security Council in these big issues. But those are very much not part of this this report. And also want to just mention the Arctic, which was heavily well, not heavily discussed, but we discussed for a fair amount in the and the national intelligence estimate, because I think that's a good example that shows our how climate change is impacting the operational environment and is shaping how the world and the United States will operate just based upon the sheer size of the ice melting in the Arctic, leading to natural resource extraction as well as trade routes. Thanks. My second question, uh, have you seen or do you expect to see any kind of factual challenges to the findings or uh, alternative conclusions drawn from the same data made by Republicans? I mean, just besides just, you know, objecting to the whole premise in the first place. I can jump in on that to start. I have not seen factual challenges to the reports. What I have seen is some pushback on the defense piece in particular, that the Defense Department is distracted by climate change from the real threat of China. There was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal to that effect. There have been some other op-eds other places there. And again, it goes back to the question that was asked at the very beginning of this discussion of, you know, is it climate or China? And again, I just think the framing is wrong, but that that messaging is is out there. And and But actually, on climate security writ large over the past 10 years or so in Congress, if you look at congressional action, there's been bipartisan support for climate security provisions and the National Defense Authorization Bill. They've done a lot to create new institutions within the intelligence community to link up scientists and the IC on these issues. They've also required reports from, from the Department of Defense. It's adaptation work that Mark was talking about earlier. So I think generally speaking, the security frame has bipartisan support, but I have seen some pushback at a broader kind of strategic level of are we, should we be more, more focused on China as opposed to releasing any reports about, about climate change? And obviously I, I strongly disagree with that, but that message is, is out there. And I would just offer that I agree with everything Aaron said. I usually co-sign to everything Aaron says as a matter of general practice. It's good practice. Is there actually has been some work done via the defense budget bills in the last four years 
people are astounded when I tell them that President Trump did sign climate legislation into law via the, the National Defense Authorization Act requiring reports, requiring DOD to basically tweak some of the adaptation management in floodplains. And so there'll always be, I think, a certain group of people that will argue this or piece to your question, but I, I, I always <laughs> dispute the, the premise of the question. And, and I do think that the only piece of climate legislation that we really have beyond the Clean Air Act as a federal legislative matter, we actually do have defense security related pieces of legislation. Why is that important? Because at the end of the day, these are executive branch documents and issued by the president. President Trump took climate change out of the national security strategy and legislation is just so, so, so important. And I highlighted this in the lawfare piece because that really provides durability, that really provides sort of the long-term legislative legs that we need to tackle this problem. So uh, these reports are noticeably maybe more than the prior reports, but they aren't the first climate reports from the national security community. And so I guess I wanted to understand a little bit more about what changes either the national security community or more likely the military has already made in response to either new investments, new operational changes. Um, and to the extent you have any specific examples of ways that folks have already made change, that would be really great. So you're right. These aren't the first reports and they aren't the, isn't the first NIE from the intelligence community. There was an NIA in 2008, I believe, 2007, slightly different name, but same, same type of report. I think what we've seen at the Defense Department overall is, is they've really tackled the adaptation question, right? And the resilience question. So how do we make sure we don't sustain billions of dollars of damage at Tyndall Air Force Base again on the Gulf Coast like they did in, in recent years? And they have developed a tool, a defense a climate assessment tool to evaluate all of their installations uh, for climate resilience. And so that, that piece of the puzzle, I think, has been a relatively big focus for them. I think what's different now is a broader uh, scope of understanding that it's not only our own facilities and installations that are at risk, but it's also going to shape where we're going to have to fight on the battlefield, potentially, or how we fight on the battlefield and where risks might arise. And in that sense, I think there's still work to be done. I'm expecting that in the budget request for next year, we're going to see a pretty robust uh, request on a lot of climate provisions within the defense defense department. I think the, the other area that there has not been as much attention to is the mitigation question, cutting emissions, and what can the department do to lead by example on that. I think the executive order from President Biden will, requires them to do some things like electrifying the federal fleet of cars. And so that makes a huge, huge difference at the Defense Department. There's actually will be a third report coming out from DOD on the energy and mitigation question within the next month or so here. So that's kind of the third of the, the trio they were required to do. And so I expect to see some, some changes there as well. So yeah, you're, you're right that this issue has been brought up before, but again, it's really been that, that adaptation and resilience where you've seen actual action. And I'm, I just want to thank for that question because you're exactly right. Just to contextualize these four documents, I counted seven executive orders, 14 different policies and instructions, seven regulations and six existing laws that all get at the broader term of climate security. I, I would offer that there has been work done, particularly in the sort of the DOD zoning adaptation, floodplains management, both through the NDAA, as well as this document that some civil engineers might be familiar with, known as the Unified Facilities Criteria, which does put affirmative sort of 
teeth to planning for climatic conditions, climatic impacts. And so much of the focus, I think, has been on adaptation. I think none of these really get at the geopolitical risk. So, and to Aaron's point about mitigation, just, just to reaffirm, so there's been some fair amount of work looking at what is the DOD's emissions sort of, what is its total emissions? And it's quite large, about 50 to 60 if largest emissions if it was considered to be its own independent nation. So it's, it's about the same size as Portugal or Sweden, depending on how you, how you add that up. I was a little bit, if I had one quibble with the reports, and I love these reports because this is what I do all day, is that I, I want to see a little bit more about what's the emissions reduction plan? What's the plan to actually get at DOD's reduction in emissions? I, I need to see a little more detail on that to feel a little bit more comfortable. Great. Thank you. Um, so I'm actually working in healthcare, and my question is the tie-in between health impacts, national security, and climate in the, in the sense that we're also looking at the collapse of infrastructure. I mean, when the, when the physical healthcare infrastructure goes, what, has anybody sort of made that connection between national security, healthcare, and climate? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I think that was an area actually that I would argue was perhaps a bit uh, thin in the national intelligence estimate was bringing in the, the health impacts. They're there and they're discussed. But again, I think this is a challenge of a document like this. It covers so many different topics that it didn't dig into to some in great depth. And again, I imagine there's a whole plan to do that in, in classified documents going forward. But I can tell you that there are folks who look at health and, and security and the National Intelligence Council and then the IC and, and bringing that, that lens in uh, with climate, I'm sure is, is something, something they're, they're planning to look at. But it was, it was in the document, but not in, not in great detail. I think some of that's happening more in the domestic uh, assessments as well, and the work from EPA and from other offices to bring in bring in the health lens. And I would just offer outside the security context, and though it's somewhat related, is that we know based upon carbon pollution, carbon emissions, and things along those lines, which is a double whammy in that it's a greenhouse gas emitter causing climate change, but it also is, is carbon pollution with enormous deleterious health impacts, particularly for poor communities, uh, communities of color that oftentimes have poorer air quality. And so the security health nexus is starting to, if you think of human security, national security, that's certainly there, but that is sort of a growing, growing field. I, I've always said, every time we say climate change, we need to say carbon pollution because it's just not greenhouse gas emissions. It's, it's quality of air, which people, I think, kind of wrap their head around a bit better. I will offer on the COVID-19, I've done some writing on this. It was interesting to me looking at aggregate greenhouse gas emissions. We need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions worldwide by anywhere from seven to 8% per year up until 2030 to have a chance of avoiding irreversible catastrophic harm. And the COVID-19, which resulted in a massive global economic shutdown, we failed to reduce emissions that to that level. And so it shows us, shows me at least, that the problem of getting at greenhouse gas emissions is really so baked in to our economy, so baked into our transportation structure, so baked in to so many of our systems that it's a really, really, really tough problem. So there's been some legal scholarship on, on making this, but it's still very much in the, in the nascent stages. Great. Thank you, guys. Hello. So I have a question. Assuming uh, Biden does declare a national emergency, climate emergency, what would that look like and how might it work? I'll take this <laughs> question because 
I have a low review article with the title is climate change, a national emergency, which is in edits right now, which is using the national emergencies act to potentially address climate change. I think that there's enormous <laughs> political economy, democratic governance, just sort of issues associated with it. But part of the work of this paper, and I can send the link to maybe uh, Natalie or you outside, it's publicly available to download uh, online and it's going through edits, is that there's some research that the signaling impact could be both pro or con uh, with declaring something a national emergency. We're in about 37 to 38 national emergencies today. Most people are unaware of that using this delegated congressional authorities. But there actually is some real work that can be done pursuant to this law, uh, one of them being the Defense Production Act, which can be used both as a non-emergency and an emergency for critical loans to critical technologies for the national defense. So we're thinking capaciously about that. I think after COVID-19, the D Defense Production Act was used for personal protective equipment, but might that be able to incentivize renewable technology? I'm really interested in offshore wind, floating wind technology. We have no wind in the California coast, but could that be one of those uses of the DPA, the Defense Production Act, to incentivize uh, this, these public-private partnerships? There's also some discussion that maybe the International Economic Emergencies Powers Act, IEPA, which could be used to potentially target certain nations. I'll, I'll use one example, Brazil, which is currently burning down the Amazon forest at a very, very uh, high rate. So that is a critical carbon sink and reservoir just to soak up the, that carbon pollution. Declaring a climate emergency, that would activate those special authorities to kind of synchronize our trade policies and our climate policies. But I, I try to unpack this. It's a very complicated issue. I think some work can be done I'm really tracking the infrastructure and reconciliation package to see what is done and what is not done. I think there will be increased political pressure to start looking at innovative legal tools as we get closer and closer to, to 2030. Great. So we only have a couple of minutes left. I wanna ask one sort of big question and then I wanna ask my favorite ending question, which is what didn't I ask you that I should have asked you? Mark, you mentioned Glasgow is coming up, um, obviously a really important convening of the international community. I'm curious what both of you think that presents in terms of opportunities and if the fact of these reports, I assume, was keyed to coming out prior to Glasgow happening, but what should we read out of the reports? What should we read out of the timing? What will the fact of these reports enable the president to accomplish and sort of anything else in terms of the link between these reports and their findings and Glasgow. Yeah, so just, yeah, so these reports were issued pursuant to an executive order in January titled Tackling the Climate Crisis at, at Home and Abroad. So they're responsive to that President Biden executive order. Side note, President Biden is a proud graduate of Syracuse University College of Law, class of 1968. His class photo was right down the hall from my office here in, in Syracuse. But I think that was timed, I think you're exactly right, to be what to be before uh, the Glasgow conference. I, what I really want to see, frankly, is Paris Agreement is a legally binding process where nations produce their nationally determined contributions. There's a huge question, I think, on what are those nationally determined contributions? Are they truthful? Can they be audited? Are they transparent? And what do they say exactly? For example, we are seeing a bunch of nations pledge net zero carbon emissions by a certain date. That's interesting, it's easy to do, but
but implementing, resourcing that and having a plan to actually get there is much, much harder. So at Glasgow, I really want to see how are these NDCs going to be actually reduced in a, in a meaningful way? And I think we should ask tough questions. For example, Russia has set, put out that, which is a petrostate, which is really, really, uh, the NIE said is very much in danger with fossil fuels being reduced uh, as being unable to move their economy forward. It's unclear based upon their existing methane leaks and existing environmental disasters, if their, their actual greenhouse gas emissions they're reporting is remotely close to the actuality. The atmosphere could care less about what's on the Excel spreadsheet for the NDCs. It really cares about what is being pumped into the atmosphere. So at Glasgow, I really want to focus on the ground truth of transparency and implementation. Yeah, just to build on that, what I'm hoping as part of the discussion at Glasgow, and I think these documents will help, is that there's obviously going to be a push from a lot of the developing countries for more climate finance, for loss and damage, right? Help with adaptation and resilience. And I think these documents make the case that there is a security reason to support that, right? To finance uh, the energy transition in these countries, to help them with these shocks that are already coming there. Because if we don't do that, then those climate shocks can turn into conflict, can turn into instability, can drive forced migration in a way that is destabilizing in parts of the world. And so I think I'm hoping that 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 link between security and and the right thing to do right for these countries that have not emitted uh, at the same level as as countries like China and the United States and others um, is is important. And so I, I I think that these will be a resource. I wouldn't be surprised. I know Samantha Power and and Tony Blinken are going to Glasgow as well. And I'd be I I would imagine their comments will draw from from these reports in many cases. So I am wondering now. What do you wish that I or we had asked you and did not? So I'll, I'll just jump in there. The, the NIE discusses certain geopolitical divides. And I just want to highlight to the listeners that one of the things I, I, I think is really important for me is this divide between developed world, which have really put the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, and the developing world, which are poorer nations, which are much fewer greenhouse gas emissions have come from their local economies and how we transition those economies in a safe, equitable, just way is really a key question. And the developing nations lack the resources to adapt. The national intelligence estimate actually said the United States actually in a pretty, as a wealthy Western nation is in a pretty good shape to adapt to climate change's impacts. Other nations, developing nations don't have that luxury. And the second thing I would just offer is, you know, I read a lot of climate reports, a lot of climate science. It could be kind of dark at times, and, and, and but, but there's also opportunity. And I just want to end with this because people should be excited about this challenge in terms of renewable energy, about technology, technology innovations. We're waiting for the solution. People say like, oh, they'll solve the climate crisis. You know, we are the they. We are the people who will be part of that solution, part of this dialogue to address climate change. I believe it's an all hands on deck type of evolution to borrow my naval experience. And so we really, really need the brightest minds thinking about this in, in, in a positive, optimistic way because we have the solutions before us, we just haven't yet implemented them. Great, Aaron. 
Sure. I guess I'll continue on the theme of, of opportunity, right? What are the opportunities of bringing a climate lens to the national security space? And we talked earlier a bit about with allies and partners and how to support them, but there's also an opportunity in the work of conflict prevention and peace building, right? And in the same way that, that climate can drive risks of conflict, bringing climate in, tackling it in local communities, helping them with adaptation and resilience can prevent conflict as well. And so I think that, you know, I'm anxious to see uh, where USAID, for example, takes some of this, the, the State Department as well, bringing that climate lens in because there have been, you know, lots of research has been done that bringing climate to the table and conflict prevention brings new actors to the table. Having technical conversations between folks who have the same background and say water management on opposing sides can sometimes break through log jams or build trust when you share data, when you share information between parties. And so in that sense, the climate security work is not only about better warning about risks, but it's also about finding finding ways to build peace and, and prevent conflict in, in different parts of the world. And so I think for me, that's really exciting actually, and a new opportunity for the United States and others to pursue. That's great. Thank you. And it's nice to end on a little bit of optimism because it is true that when I look at climate change related things, I am filled with despair. Um, but thank you guys both so much, Aaron and Mark, for all of your expertise. I think this is a really fascinating and undertreated area um, that is unfortunately, as you said, with government personnel, but also more broadly, just sort of lacking in enough experts. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great questions. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And if you're feeling inspired, you can get Lawfare merchandise at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineers this week were Bryce Clem of Lawfare and Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 